from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we also veer off the serial killer path to delve into other topics within our beloved true crime community. Special thanks to some of my patrons, of course. Janice, Pixie, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katoras, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katarina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and Judy. Thank you so much. You guys are truly appreciated. Now, this podcast is the first in an occasional series of stories about old mental hospitals and asylums. Now, it goes without saying that some of the verbiage or words used back when these facilities were up and running are now considered unacceptable in polite society with regards to the descriptions of patients and what they were suffering with and so on. So to save some time, rather than excusing myself every time we run into an uncomfortable word, just know that I understand they are crass and I mean no disrespect. Okay, with that said, let's get started with the first two asylums. The first state hospital we're going to actually look at is the Danvers State Hospital, but it has been known by a few other names such as Hawthorne Hill, Porter Hill, Dodges Hill, but most importantly, the State Lunatic Hospital. Now, according to the website DanversStateHospital.org, the sprawling 500-acre hilltop plot of land was purchased in 1874 from Francis Dodge. It was said to have been an absolutely beautiful area with many oak and pine trees as well as apple groves. The history of that very hill is that the original Salem Village judge once lived there, the judge that sentenced those women to burn. This is where Danvers State Hospital was built. This site was chosen carefully so that it would be plenty far away from Boston, which is just 18 miles to the south. Nathaniel J. Bradley was a prominent Boston architect and the one who oversaw the construction. There was kind of an immediate need for this hospital due to several other hospitals either closing their doors or others within a reasonable distance were already well past capacity. But it did officially open its doors in May of 1878 after four years of construction and included spaces for patients, attendants, and administration, quote, reflecting a centralized approach to care. End quote. It had two main center buildings that housed the administration and continued into four wings on each side of the administration area. This housed the kitchen, the laundry, chapel, and dormitories for the attendants. 
Each side of the main building were wings, males obviously separated from the females, and, of course, the outermost wards being reserved for the more hostile patients. And predictably, there were add-ons built onto the grounds and to the main buildings that included a gymnasium, additional kitchen space, and other areas. Now, it is said that most of the buildings on the grounds were connected by a labyrinth of underground tunnels, but this was a pretty common thing in those types of facilities, and the original intention was to have more comfort moving the more dependent patients around between the buildings to keep them out of the cold winters and pouring rain, and this also benefited the employees. The important thing to remember is that this beautiful state-of-the-art facility was designed to comfortably accommodate 500 patients on the main floors and potentially a further 1,000 patients in the completely finished attic areas and later buildings constructed to accommodate. So the sort of philosophy of the hospital was built upon the new and fresh ideas behind mental health care Dr. Thomas Kirkbride. His backstory is that he was originally trained as a surgeon but quickly specialized with people with severe mental health issues. He was a strong advocate for moral treatment of these patients. His philosophy was based on compassionate and respect for the insane. He wanted to create a wholly humane environment where everyone was treated with dignity regardless of financial background. He believed that if patients were treated this way, along with feeling a greater sense of freedom, they could eventually recover and be able to re-enter society. This was absolutely revolutionary thinking for the times when effective medications and other modern treatments basically didn't exist yet. So Danvers Hospital was established as a way to provide residential treatment and care for people with pretty substantial mental health issues. And then they expanded their program to include a nursing school on site in 1889, and then also added pathological research laboratory in 1895. By the 1890s, it was also a place where parents could bring their children to be tested to determine mental deficiency. And remember that a lot of this science, while important, was in its infancy, but grabbed the attention of the public instantly. As one can imagine, the hospital was forever being expanded and became a working farm, growing food on site for the patients that they tended themselves. Well, the ones that could, if you know what I mean. And it had a full power water station and basically was made to be its own self-sustaining little city, as it were. But as huge and ornate as the hospital was, it was also criticized because many people didn't understand why so much money had to go into a building for the insane when it could have been better spent on public works. And as beautiful and innovative as this all sounds, right, this very hospital would later inspire H.P. Lovecraft's Arkham Sanitarium, as well as DC Comics' own version of Arkham Asylum. By the late 1930s and 40s, the hospital was housing well over 2,000 patients, meaning overcrowding was a huge problem, forcing some patients to have to be housed 
in the basement that clearly wasn't set up to accommodate people living in it. And not everyone sent to the asylum actually suffered from mental illness. Some people sent there were just too poor and couldn't take care of themselves. Unfortunately, while the growth was nearly out of control, the funding for the hospital was not increased. The administration pleaded with the state to increase funding repeatedly, but they were not successful. So this led to a rapid decline in cleanliness and sanitation within the hospital. Some of the more hard to contain patients were being left in straitjackets for incredibly long periods of time. The practice of hydrotherapy was being practiced, which is the use of water, a constant torrent of water to be exact, that would be used to, quote, cool the heat of madness or rouse the melancholic, or patients were left in baths, which were meant to help calm the nerves. And as more and more beds were brought in to try to accommodate the huge influx of patients, there were no more staff members hired to help with the huge increase in numbers. In one year alone, nearly 300 patients died in the facility due to lack of care in some form or another. Now, it was observed that some patients were running around the facility completely naked and others were living in their own filth. And to top it all off, doctors were performing, at this time, highly experimental prefrontal lobotomies to patients to try to cure people from their madness. This procedure included a doctor using a thin, spiked object, much like an ice pick, to penetrate through the inner corner of the eye, wiggled around, so to speak, to separate brain tissue, and there are so many of these sorts of experimental surgeries performed here that Danvers earned itself the name, quote, birthplace of the prefrontal lobotomy, end quote. As one can imagine, these surgeries would often leave people in a horrible daze, wandering the halls, barely consciously aware of themselves, let alone their surroundings. But again, this procedure was usually what the staff considered effective enough to calm the more violent patients, making them much easier to deal with. So the procedure was adopted lightning fast throughout the country. If the lobotomies didn't work, patients were left in straitjackets to try to keep the population contained and under control. They also used a lot of electroshock therapy and untested drugs to try to keep the patients pliable. By the 1940s, it was reported that many patients were just wandering aimlessly through the halls, staring blankly at the walls. The ones that weren't so quiet, were not allowed to leave the hospital. They were held against their will. The lack of funding furthered the deterioration of the facility, furthering the horrific conditions inside. Finally, the state stepped in, shutting down parts of the hospital in 1969. By 1985, most of it was closed completely, and the hospital was completely and permanently closed in 1992. 
Afterwards, it was a very popular place for people who thrilled in exploring abandoned buildings, like I do, to do paranormal research, and many swore that the grounds were haunted. All that remains of the deceased patients are two cemeteries, totaling 770 graves. And the grave markers are only marked with a number, so there's no way of knowing who is actually buried there. Now, in December of 2005, the property was sold to an apartment developer. There was a lawsuit that tried to preserve the dilapidated facility because it was listed on the National Register of Historical Places. But this was not successful, and much of the hospital was demolished, save a few buildings and just the very front brick wall of the administration building that were converted into actually pretty nice apartments. It was said that much of the wood during the demo was actually retained and recycled into flooring and other projects, which is really nice. And then a fire broke out in four of the complex buildings and the fire was allegedly visible all the way from Boston. In 2014, the property was sold again to another group for $108.5 million. The new group finished building apartments, which is what the facility is still today. Now, if you're interested in seeing what Danvers looked like while it was abandoned and before the apartment construction, I'll actually link a YouTube video down below that is a walkthrough of the hospital. It is of a young man at the time working security to make sure there were no trespassers and so on. So the next hospital that we're going to talk about is Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, though it was known originally as the Weston State Hospital. Construction on this one began in 1858, and it first opened its doors in 1863 in historic Weston, West Virginia. It was, just like Danvers, the brainchild of Thomas Kirkbride. The architect was Richard Andrews, who also planned the facility to have long, rambling wings arranged in a staggered formation to ensure each structure would get plenty of sunlight and fresh air. It had long, spacious hallways, clean private rooms, high ceilings, and big windows. It was the largest hand-cut stone masonry building in North America and is reportedly the second in the world next to Moscow's Kremlin. Now, the construction of this hospital was actually halted for a while due to the beginning of the Civil War in 1861. And then the building began. It was initially conducted by prison laborers, including the first seven workers being men of color. Then professional stonemasons were imported from Germany and Ireland. There were some whispers about how this facility was victim to some Civil War raids, but eventually the first patients were admitted in late 1864, even though the construction was not yet complete. And again, just like Danvers, it was planned as a self-sustaining facility with a farm, a dairy, waterworks, and so on. The patients that were able to work the farm did so. Now, it was built to comfortably house 250 patients and was indeed a rather idyllic sanctuary in the beginning. And again, 
as history so famously repeats itself, the hospital quickly became overwhelmed with patients. Construction continued to try to accommodate the influx of people and was considered completed in 1881. Now, after about 20 years of operation and as society saw an increase in both mental health diagnoses, along with the stigma that surrounded those conditions, let's not forget also the people that were poor and considered all around undesirable. Well, this led to a major increase in admissions to the hospital. It was said by 1938, the hospital was housing six times its intended capacity. And so we begin to see the administration beg for the funding that would clearly not come and therefore no more staff could be hired and conditions deteriorated quickly. It was reported that the patients that were seen as hard to handle were locked in makeshift cages in the grand open hallways so that they could then apparently free up beds for the more compliant patients. The restrooms and other areas were overrun with squalor. The wallpaper was torn and hanging in ribbons down the walls and the furniture was filthy and dusty. And just like the hospital itself, the patients were no longer cared for adequately or frequently and sometimes even went without much needed treatment or even food. Now, this hospital at its peak in the 1950s was housing roughly 2,600 patients, now 10 times the number it was intended to serve. And the experimental lobotomies were in full swing. The doctor at the hospital was estimated to have carried out a total of 4,000 lobotomies in his lifetime. He left many patients with lasting physical and cognitive damage. Some died on the operating table. So the increasing abuse and neglect of the patients went largely unnoticed or reported until 1949. The Charleston Gazette reported on the terrifying conditions, but this really made very little impact. The hospital was designated a National Historic Landmark in 1990. Four years later, it closed its doors for good. It was eventually bought by a man named Joe Jordan in 2007, who opened it up for tours and other events to raise money for its restoration. Today, the manor-like facility is a sort of museum. There are exhibits in the main building of the asylum, including art made by actual patients in the art therapy program, exhibits of treatments of the past, including straitjackets, and even a room dedicated to restraints. Visitors can also take a so-called paranormal tour where devout ghost hunters have all reported having experiences. And so with that, I say that I have several other facilities on my list. So this is just the first two. I will also be covering some mental hospitals outside of the United States, as that is only fair to our loved global community. So tell me, guys, what do you think? Do you think that if perhaps the funding had been increased at a level needed to better facilitate the hospital and the needs of the patients, 
would they have been able to maintain that original plan of comfort, peace, and care that they had intended? Or do you think that, no matter whether the budgets were increased or not, things behind those grand, nearly palatial exterior walls would have deteriorated anyway? That it was just too easy to exploit these people in the name of science. Tell me guys, what do you think? You can leave me a comment below if you're watching or you can DM me on Instagram at serial underscore killing. You can email me at serialkillinginstagram at gmail.com. All of my contact stuff is in the notes. Consider becoming a patron and as always, thank you so, so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.